A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Rings of Power Lorecast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. I'm John. This is our Lorecast on the Rings of Power Season 1, Episode 3, Adar. Each week on the Lorecast, we are going to be analyzing the Rings of Power for the lore that we see in the show as a way to provide you with additional context for what's on screen. It's our hope that this extra info will help you enjoy the show more and feel more connected to the world that Tolkien created. For full episode reviews, check out Bald Boo's coverage over on the Doug 2 Deep feed, where Jim and Aaron will be breaking down the plot and production of each episode every Friday. In this episode, we have a lot of segments for you. First off, we're going to address some issues of racism and misogyny that are occurring on the outsides of the fandom, and then we're going to discuss Tolkien's concept of the canons of narrative art, and how to address making adaptations from an original source material. Then we have some catch-up from the premiere with episode one and two, including analysis of the opening sequence, a discussion of approaching the shores of Valinor, a brief lineage of the trees, and some information on elven healers. And then for our main topic, we're going to deep dive into the lore and history of the island of Numenor. 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 (laughs) That's how Jim likes to say it. Yes. Lastly, we've got some listener feedback in our mailbag. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondage at baldmove.com, and we'll get to those questions on the next episode. If you want to talk Tolkien with us sooner, join the Bald Move Discord. The link is in the description below, or hop over to baldmove.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, to get all our content about the Rings of Power and other shows this fall, like The White Lotus and The Wheel of Time. And please, if you have a moment... Rate and review our podcast to help us uh, help other people find it. I know it's one of those things that we, everybody begs you for, but hey, take a moment, sh- let us know how you feel, and if you have the time, we would certainly appreciate uh, your reviews. And um, a quick note about scheduling. I'm going to be away on a work trip for the next few episodes. I'll be back for the finale. But in the meantime, Jim and Aaron are going to be subbing in for me. And I think, John, you've got some guest interviews lined up as well. Yes, we will definitely have Marilyn Pukila back. Cool. Marilyn's great. I'm not sure who else I can announce just yet, but Mm. I think I have at least one more. Um, Now, regarding the instant takes, 
We did want to do more, but it seems like Amazon is going to keep to this midnight schedule. So we can't really do that. I'm not sure anybody would even show up, to be honest. So uh, a little late for everybody. So that said, we're thinking about an instant take for the finale. Maybe a second breakfast. I always like second breakfast, John. All right. So we'll keep you posted on that as we go through this season. John, um, it's been a few days since we've had a chance to chat, and uh, I've been really excited to talk through this episode with you and to get into some of this uh, lore stuff. But first, what'd you think about episode three? I thought it was the strongest episode yet, and I know that that's not... Really? Yeah, I know that that's not a uh, super common opinion, but I actually loved all the political intrigue. I thought it was better done than I thought it would be, you know, it, it was, it was interesting to see Tar Muriel really going through these political machinations to uh, mm-hmm. get her goals accomplished while not losing power. I think that we we are in for a treat uh, with this Tar Muriel plotline. Galadriel is is really annoying this episode. I mean, I mean, really. Uh, my my wife was like, she's a racist, and <laughs> she is. She's she's going to the you mere mortals. She just hates men. Oh my god. Uh, but uh, yeah, she is uh, very much this episode. So I think that overall, though, the episode is good. I even like the Harfoot stuff, which I did not expect. I mean, taking a a darker approach to the Harfoots really made me take them more seriously and not see them as this like comic relief or this cash grab to get at Hobbit money. How about you? Yeah, um I I just am really taken with the sh- the crafting that they're putting into the show. There are some weak areas of dialogue and there's a couple of moments of CGI that sort of bounced me out, but then I was able to get right back in and there's a lot of information still to, to process. But then when you start to look at things, I'm really finding that there is a dedication to the craft of storytelling in the televised medium. So like one thing is uh, Arondir's shock is our shock when he sees mm-hmm. his company has been captured. Um, scene transitions, particularly into the Harfoot celebration, right? You were still sort of left with this orcish uh, feeling of doom over you. And then yet, and then here you go and you see these creatures running through the forest and it takes you a moment to go, oh, wait, we're switching over to the Harfoots. And they're like, Mm -hmm. wow, this is pretty dark for Harfoots, right? Um, There is great paralleling that's going on. Sauron's map and Meteor Man's map. Deeper themes, Adar, right? That means father in Quenya, I believe. Um, And then if we look at the dominant themes of this episode, there's a lot of stuff about fathers and and fatherhood involved in here. So to me, that's like just really great crafting of of narrative structures for uh, for television. I, I really like that they're they're paying off a number of the little mysteries as we're going along. So like we're not going to be completely eating dry bread the entire time, mm-hmm. and the production values just continue to be off the charts. Yeah, I cannot yeah. fathom the amount of effort and time that went into the production designers, the costumers, the set builders. This is some of the most excellent production work that I've seen film or television. It's it's really phenomenal. And I just feel like we're on track to have an excellent series of television over the, the entire lifespan of this show. Okay, one caveat to that. Okay. The Galadriel Asterix. yes. 
riding the horse with her teeth <laughs> showing with her lips being pulled back by the wind. All right. Weird. Nope. Nope. No, that one. That one was. I was like, what am I watching? Yes, I know. I was like, I would be writing some like, is this going to get like an adult themed situation here? Like, it was pretty weird. Very odd. Yeah. Very odd. I get the uh, point that they were driving at, which was like showing her joy. Like she, we haven't, we've only seen her serious and dour and focused, and we've never mm-hmm. seen that childlike nature of her since the beginning. Right. Well, overall, good episode. There were, yes. you know, we can nitpick, but it we was can. overall a good episode. Okay, so uh, let's quickly talk about. Uh, we're going to just address this, and then we're going to get into uh, some other stuff. There is racism and misogyny on the outskirts of the fandom, and we're just going to clearly state again that this podcast is not about that. We are opposed to that. Um, That is not a part of what we want to see. I I don't even want to call it the fandom, because I don't think somebody who is a fan of Tolkien's work could actually fathom being racist. I mean, the whole Lord of the Rings storyline is about interspecies cooperation, you know? Um, And so we're just making a very clear statement that that is not uh, what we're here for, and um, uh, we just don't need to have that in our space and in our community. And I'll say that I'm proud of the main stream of the community for standing against that. And even for you see Elijah Wood, and I don't know their names, but the actress who played Marion Pippin coming together and wearing shirts in solidarity of the cast and taking pics and being on social media. I think it's great that they're saying, you know, if you love our movies, you got to love these actors, too. Yeah. Um, one thing, practical thing, if you're thinking about this issue for yourselves and, you know, something you could do, if you're on social media, if you're on Twitter or TikTok or anything else, go find uh, BIPOC creators and follow them. There's a lot of great people out there um, who are are big fans, deep lore nerds like us, uh, great cosplayers. There's a whole world of BIPOC creators out there. Um, go find them. Who's that guy you listen to lately? Oh, yeah. No better, do better. He is amazing. Yeah, he's great. I love him. Um, anyway, go find him. Uh, follow them, like them, you know, share their social media. Like, that's just one, like, really simple practical thing that um, you can do as a listener to uh, to help, um, you know, burn the, the light brighter and, and sort of push this darkness away. Okay, so now that we've been over that, now that we've discussed this ugly stuff, let's get into some pretty stuff. Let's get into the thing that you wanted to talk about this week. You've been dying to talk to me about it. It's the <laughs> canons of adaptation as applied to Tolkien. Yes, uh, the canons of narrative art, as Tolkien once um, commented in uh, some of his letters and writings. So some of you may know who Tom Shippey is. If you don't, no big deal. Don't worry about it. He's an academic. Um, he's written a lot. He's worked. He worked with Jackson on the films. He was working with this production. Then I think he slipped up and maybe broke his NDA, and they had to distance a little bit. Whatever. Um, he's a cool guy. He's uh, one of the luminaries of of um, modern, you know, interpreting modern um, a- academic works in in the Tolkien world. Anyway, back in 2010, he gave a lecture at Swarthmore College. Uh, the title of Tolkien Book to Jackson Script, The mm. Medium and the Message. Now, we've linked this in the show notes below, so you can go to that. They've got a transcript of the audio, and then if you scroll all the way to the bottom, you can listen to the lecture, and it's about 50 minutes long. It's fascinating. It's really super interesting, even if you're not into academic stuff. But it was 
something that really grabbed me and I thought was might be helpful for us as we're talking about adaptations and how you um, how you bring an adaptation to life. So what are what are these pillars here? Yeah. So back when Tolkien was first presented a script uh, uh, to uh, adapt Lord of the Rings, there was a guy named Zimmerman. Uh, Tolkien got the script back, and he was uh, <laughs> horrified and aghast at what he was given to read. <laughs> and apparently, Zimmerman, to his credit, um, actually uh, turned over this script to the archives, and so you can go see this thing. And apparently, Tolkien's notes are all over it. It's pretty funny. That's awesome. Um in but in relation in in you know in in reaction to that there's this thing that came up and Tolkien was talking about stuff and and he and he spat out this phrase called canons of narrative art and it was all about well what's the you know what's the core of a storyline or the core of a, a of a message that's being delivered through a story and then so Shippy takes this and he goes into it a little bit further and I don't want to go too deep into it. But suffice to say that I kind of like to call this the shippy test. Okay. And he's got sort of three questions that you can frame when you're looking at an adaptation. The first is, what's the core of the story? Okay. The second is, or, you know, the core message, the core theme, the core ideas, the the key emotional uh, or intellectual uh, notes that the, the author is trying to deliver. Ah, so Catholicism. Basically, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then you want to look at what changes are necessary or inevitable inevitable because of the medium itself. Hmm. So like filming, and this is great, he goes into this long conversation or uh, description about this, that, you know, The Lord of the Rings, the book, uh, it's a, it's a, as Jackson said, it's a road movie, but uh, as Shippey likes to point out uh, in that lecture, that there's a sh- massive chunk of a, a committee meeting record in the middle of the book, right? So you can't just film that straight. So like right. you have to break things up and move things around. So um, changes that are necessary or inevitable because of the medium. And then lastly, what changes are the results of authorial intent? So like what did the screenwriters do intentionally um, to change this? And so when you factor the – when you start to factor these things in – and I think we do a a lot of this by – just by ha- force of habit these days, because we're getting so many adaptations. Right. But I really like this structure because we can now use this for anything as a frame to look at, was the core of the story achieved? Did you get the right feels? Did you get the right message that the original author was intending to, to bring you? And then those changes, were they inevitable because of, of medium? And were those changes intentional uh, on the part of the authors, of the screenwriters, etc., to be able to achieve the core of the story. So to me, it's just a, a nice framework, a nice test that we can use to gauge derivative work and to say something then about that derivative work. So where'd you learn about this? Uh, I was listening to the Rings of Power wrap-up podcast, actually, and they talked about it uh, when they were doing their um, episode one and two reaction. And those guys are great. Like those, we we kind of stand on their shoulders a little bit. I, at least I do. Um, they are just their lore knowledge is in, incredible. And uh, yeah, so they talked about this, and then I went over to the to the website for the uh, for the place where he gave the lecture, and I've listened to it <laughs> about five or six times because it's just really interesting. There's a lot of interesting nuances uh, nuances and facets to the point that Shippy even says, well, you know, Tolkien was not a professional story, uh, author, 
right? He's a lecturer. He's a professor. Right. And as a as a professional author and and his adherence to, you know, canons of narrative art, even he was like, I mean, as you've said on this podcast a lot, you know, Tolkien's greatest critic was Tolkien, right? Or something, I'm paraphrasing right. what you said. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really tough to take a lot of this to screen, especially because it's the same thing as you're doing with Fire and Blood and House of the Dragon. It's you are looking at histories. You're looking at histories that are supposed to be in-universe. Both of them are supposed to be in-universe. This is a book that's been passed down from different elves. Most of the Silmarillion is supposed to be elves. I'm not sure about the last couple books where it covers Numenor. Have to get back to you on that one. But these are in-universe histories. And how do you take into account like bias? And how do you take into account uh, making this feel like the source material? Making it match even the Lord of the Rings sort of in tone? Uh, well, expanding things that happen over a paragraph. You know, I, I think uh, Jim and Aaron said on on their podcast. You know, if you tell me a good story, it's fine. Do what you need to do structurally, and I think that it, that goes to that core of the story. Are are we getting the characters delivered? Their arcs, their 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 prime motivations, the struggles that they go through. What does it say to us about our own um, experiences as humans? You know, if if we're doing that. Then if you have to compress time or locations and, you know, move chunks of, of dialogue and content around, you know, so be it. Right. And I do subscribe a little bit to Brandon Sanderson's rule of cool. Of, <laughs> you know what? Sure. Yeah. I don't know if an elf really would have been able to swing chains like that, but it sure was cool to watch around here. cool. Swing Chain some food. chains at a warg. Yeah. A warg that did not look great. <laughs> but uh, a little goofy, but terrifying. Uh, but uh, yeah, but but terrifying. But you know what? It was cool to see him swing those chains, and uh, that's okay. You know why Legolas's shield thing was so stupid? Is because it looked bad. It wasn't cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and Shippy addresses this in his Swarthmore lecture uh, uh, about like uh, he talks about um, you know show not tell character arcs versus events. Um, you know, money and the effect of money on a production. You know, Tolkien had, you know, it didn't cost him anything functionally um, to write what he wrote. You know, it was his spare time uh, almost to a degree. Um, and he had, you know, no audience pushing back on him, whereas Jackson had a studio and financiers and they had to think about a target audience and right. that target audience was teenagers. They were going for a Star Wars market, right? Using no-named actors and trying to make sure that that teenager demographic was invested. And so putting Legolas on a skateboard was like kind of necessary. No, I, I, I'm not going to say necessary. Sorry. Let me pull that back. I want to get in trouble. We get a lot of hate mail from that. Um, but they did it because they there was that, that push from it. So there in again we use the this shippy test and we can say okay well that was a little bit off core message but you know you're trying to bring fans in you know there's a way that we can relate to this stuff now right yeah no i i think that the jackson movies are a great example of a good adaptation um you know had some issues but largely captured the heart of the work and that's what's important about it and we don't talk about the hobbits here Anyway, the, there's a link in the description at the bottom. Uh, if you're I I at all interested in this sort of next level stuff, definitely go check that out. Um, Tom, Sh Tom Shippey is a really interesting person to listen to. He's a very charismatic speaker. It was a lot of fun. Very cool. I'll have to take a listen to that later. So thanks for bringing that in. Mm. All right. So we need to catch up a little bit because we yes, got we backed up in the in the huge pipeline that is Rings of Power last week because we recorded like the day after it came out. 
And uh, a lot of things have happened since then. New shit has come to light. A lot of people have written in. A lot of people have been chatting in the Discord, bringing great things up. So uh, hop in that Discord if you want to chat with us in real time. Uh, but David, I know you have a bunch of things that you want to talk about. Uh, especially, I know you wanted to bring in the opening credit sequence because that was pretty cool. And uh, a lot of people are wondering what the heck that is. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. They they both the uh, game or House of the Dragon and uh, episode one of uh, Rings of Power both for Wint. Uh, they they did not put out a, a title sequence until episode two, which I thought was a, a very interesting thing, and I I actually kind of appreciated it. Um, yeah. Anyway, the the opening sequence that we have here is a um, some sort of uh, 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 drumhead or some sort of surface with sand vibrating on it. Well, I looked this up. So it's uh, the science is called uh, cymatics, Ooh. and it is about um, resonance pa- uh, patterns. And I uh, again, we put a link in the show notes if you want to go to the Wikipedia article for this, or just it's C Y M A T I C S cymatics. And this is all about the resonance patterns. So that's cool. That's what's vibrating the sand, and at different frequencies, different patterns will emerge. Well, when we step back and we look at um, Tolkien and the creation of the world and Eru Aluvatar, who is the, the creator god. Uvu Arugula. Yeah. Uvu Arugula. He brings the, the Valar in to sing and he teaches them how to sing. And then this is the music of the Ainur and the Aina Lindale. I think I've said that right three times you did. now. Um, and so he teaches them um, how to sing, and then this singing is what creates the world, the material world. Hmm. And one of the things that he did was he told the Ainur, hey, you guys can all bring in your own personalities and elements into this music. And Morgoth brought his dissonant notes into this. And we see that in the pattern of the sand where we sort of see this black snaking um, shape uh, moving through the sand. Uh, So that was really interesting. And when we look at the patterns that the sand makes, there are some distinctive patterns. We have the nine rings of the min. We obviously have the two trees. We have an eight-pointed Fanorian star, which is represented in some different ways, but it's basically the star that Galadriel has on her um, armor. We have a Triskelion, which is that sort of triple uh, design, interlocking design thing, and that's the Numenorian sigil, and you'll see Tarmiriel wearing that, and uh, you'll see that in a lot of Numenorian art. And then we have something that we're not sure what it is, and some of the people, some people on the internet are thinking maybe it's a mountain, maybe Mount Doom, perhaps, because it's kind of like a, a volcano looking like thing. So very cool. I thought it was an, I think this is an excellent opening because it ties in really deep lore with the Ainulindale and the Ainur and the creation of the world um, using the sound motif and then using this resonance pattern of this, this science of uh, cymatics. Yes, that is very cool, David, and I I really appreciate that you did that deep dive, especially on the science part of it. One clarification I would say is just that the music of the Ainur did not do the actual creation, but was instead the blueprint. Got it. Okay. But but it's it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, it's it's just a blueprint that the the Ainur now go down to Middle Earth or go down to Arda, I should say, go into Ea creation and then execute. But yeah, I mean, I think that using the music of the Ainur as 
the way to introduce the series is a super great nod to the lore fans while not being inaccessible to those who are just tuning into Tolkien for the first time. So I, I think that's great and a great catch on that. I didn't pick up on that and I've read the Silmarillion twice and I'm on my third time. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, I think it's very cool. It's very creative on the on their part. So next, I think that you have a quote for us about approaching the shores of Eleanor. Yeah, there was a, some discussion around this as well and and I think a lot of people um, uh, were really moved and taken by this when Galadriel and Harkadre are approaching the shores of Valinor and the clouds open and rain starts to fall and we have that, you know, rising music. It's it's really incredible. And some folks who have seen the movies will recall this quote. They actually displaced it um, because this was actually uh, in the books. It's a description that happens somewhere else. But in the movies, they moved it to a conversation that Gandalf has with, I believe, Pippin um, during the Battle of Gondor. Hmm, interesting. Um, and Brian Cogman, who was uh, a uh, he's done a bunch of writing for Game of Thrones and, and Lord of the Rings stuff. He was on the Ringer podcast with uh, Joanna and uh, Mal, and they were and I links in the show notes for this as well. And he talks about this specific how they moved this specific text uh, and why they did it. It's, it's really incredible. Anyway. So I thought this was a beautiful um, textual connection to what they did visually. And I'll, I'll read the quote from the book here. And the ship went out into the high sea and passed into the west, until at last, on a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air and heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him that as in his dream in the house of Bombadil, the gray rain curtains turned all to silver glass and was rolled back, and he beheld white shores and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise. Hmm, that's beautiful. And that's from Return of the King? Yeah, that's, so that's after Frodo has gone off and Sam is standing on the dock watching them leave. This is the description that's given. And then what they do in the movie is they take this and they give it to Gandalf when Pippin and he are talking during the, the battle in, in Gondor. Again, we got to change things for adaptations. This is a description of a scene. Perfect. How do you do that? You got to yeah. give that to somebody who's actually done it. Exactly. And I just thought that the showrunners and the production team did an amazing job because we see clouds roll back. We see rain falling. The elves start to spontaneously sing when they start to see the far shores. And, and Jim even mentioned this when he was watching it. He was like, wait, what's that beyond? And the I can't quite make it out. You know, like you can <laughs> see some shapes out there and some hillsides. And so I just could not let that moment pass without bringing the textual uh, source, you know, that, that they drew their inspiration from for that and, and point that out. Because it's just, I think, a beautiful piece of, of tele television, filmmaking, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I think that this show is doing a great job of being a show-not-tell show. Not tell show. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they do tell you some things. They do some name-dropping. They, uh, they do Elros in the episode. They 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 check the Valar. They do a, a bunch of these older things, but um, I, I think that this show does challenge its audience, especially those who haven't read the Silmarillion, those who haven't read the Lord of the Rings deeply. It is challenging you to pay attention and figure out with context clues who they're talking about. But I think that it's very rewarding for people who do, and I think that that's good. I mean, even when you saw Game of Thrones did that in like 
seasons one through four. That was another show that was sort of challenging of like, how do you keep up with all these huge cast of characters and all this history that's there? And and sometimes you do have to think about it for a little bit. Sometimes if you don't want to think about it, you come to us, we'll think about it for you. Uh, but <laughs> exactly. uh, but I, I'm glad that the show is going like this and not just spoon feeding it to me. And doing it beautifully. You right. know, the, the visuals on that scene were just incredible and, and still textually accurate. So you don't have to have read the books, you don't have to have seen the movies, but you can feel the depth of the production and the import of this moment by how they set that scene up visually. I don't know if I'd say textually accurate every time, but okay. but yes, no, yeah, 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 yeah. I know it's 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 really good though. I mean, the the visuals are beautiful. If this show tanks by the end of the season, it will not. But if this show tanks, we will have seen a beautiful dumpster fire. <laughs> the most beautiful dumpster fire known to uh, modern. The most expensive DC. dumpster yes, fire, exactly. of all time. Speaking of uh, interesting uh, textual elements. Um, John, uh, we have some questions about trees. Who begat whom? And um, maybe you could uh, walk us through the lineage of the trees and how the world was lighted. I know we've talked about it in in other podcasts before, but I think it'd be helpful um, now because it's probably going to be an element that we need to keep uh, paying attention to. Yeah, so the trees are a great symbol of sort of holiness, the Valar, uh, who are, again, these demigods that are picture that the great abrahamic god created the greek pantheon and said you guys figure everything out you guys rule the world that's basically what the valar are so if if you're confused about this manway the head of the valar that's zeus and you know the other valar just like the other greek gods so that's all that is not too hard now let's talk about the trees because that's going to be a symbol of sort of alignment with the valar of of cherishing heritage so at first and we talked about this last time a little bit uh we we did like a deep dive on like the lamp stuff the tree stuff so go back to our first lore cast if you're confused about that but so we had the two lamps that were destroyed by morgoth that was very early then there were two trees that were created by yavana that's one of the valar and those were destroyed by morgoth and ungoliant the giant spider right the fruits of that became the sun and moon but that's the end of that tree's biological lineage. That is the end of that. There's no more light-giving tree after that. There's just the sun and the moon that are from the fruits. Okay. But before those trees were destroyed, Yavanna made a white tree for the elves of Tyrion, which is that city that you saw that uh, Finrod and Galadriel were at in the prologue. Right. So the Valar made this tr- tree called Galathilion. Galathilion. That's a fun word. It is a fun word. But uh, yeah, so that's the white tree of Tyrion. That's all you need to call it. You don't need to memorize that crazy word. Okay. <laughs> uh, it did not give off light again. So so this is just an aesthetic thing. It's modeled after Telperion the moon tree, though. Okay. That is still standing at this point in the series. Uh-huh. Now, a sapling of this tree was taken by the elves to Numenor and given to the Numenorians, and it's called Nimloth, and that's the white tree you saw in this episode. Right. And we've seen it in a couple of um, flyover shots and, and some glancing shots. We haven't actually gotten too close to it just yet. Right. So so that's why this is so aligned with the Valar, because it's literally been in the Undying Lands. Like, that's a sapling of a tree from the Undying Lands, and that's the only other one right now. Okay. 
So eventually, the White Tree of Numenor, a sapling of that is taken, and that becomes the White Tree of Gondor that you see in The Lord of the Rings. So uh, that's why we have like a whole... There's actually a sapling chain that leads to the last White Tree of Gondor, but anyway, basically that's all from this one tree that was in Tyrion, the elf area of uh, the Undying Lands. Awesome. Okay, good. So we can just keep that straight, simple line in our heads, because they're probably going to compress a lot of the complex history of the saplings right. into for the show. Right. Cool. All right, and then something else came up, uh, John. Uh, elvish artificers and healers? So I scoured at least all of the digital editions of Tolkien books I have uh-huh. uh, for the word artificer. I found it once, and I searched hmm. the Silmarillion, I searched a bunch of volumes of History of Middle-Earth, and I searched the letters, and that was the only place I found it. Interesting. And I found it mentioned once, and it was only in regard to Feanor, and it was used as the traditional definition, which, you know, I just Googled it. It's a skilled craftsman or adventurer. Adventure. So this is really not a healing thing at all. This is used in, in such a way that refers more to, like, smithing and creation, I get what they're trying to do with the show, but this is definitely a non-canon thing. Um, I did find some lore on elf healing, though, that I think would be useful. Okay, yeah, I think so. Definitely. Okay, so it is a thing that elves self-heal at the height of their lifespans. Now, as elves fade, though, they start to heal less quickly and effectively. So it's possible that maybe healings develop later when the elves start to age more in Middle-earth. That could be a thing. That's just speculation for me. Uh-huh. Um, you also have a couple elves referred to as master healers. So Elrond is specifically referred to as a master healer in Lord of the Rings. Um, and in the Silmarillion, other elves such as Beleg are referred to as master healers. So this is this is something that dates back even to the first age. So definitely elvish healing existed as far back as that. So I, I kind of don't know what they're going for with this artificer thing. I, I think that elvish healing is a thing. And it's interesting because Artificer 2 is like for in some role-playing game worlds, that has a very specific context and meaning as well. So it was weird that they plopped that word out and made kind of a point of it. Because I don't think the show is they – don't, they don't waste a lot of time on a lot of stuff other than horse, uh, you know, horse riding shots. Uh, they, they seem to be pretty efficient in their, uh, in their filmmaking. Yeah, I was very confused by this decision, but it hasn't come up again, and maybe it won't, and maybe we're just overthinking it. Now, just while we're on the topic, what did you make of uh, it when Arondir's companion um, got their throat slit, and there was like almost very little blood? They kind of totally lingered agree with on Jim that. And it was like P- the PG thirteen eyesing. Oh, okay, it, they just right. didn't want to probably get the ratings up. What okay. is the rating of the show? Does anybody know? <laughs> I have no idea. I haven't even... <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I think that they're just trying to have this be sort of a slightly family-friendly show, even though okay. you, know, you got a little bit of scary moments. But like like Aaron said, I wouldn't show my kids House of the Dragon for sure. Maybe right. you'd show an older kid The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I don't know. Having that uh, warg chihuahua thing uh, <laughs> going crazy. That was a little rough. <laughs> that was a bit rough. That was a bit so. rough. So, I don't know. Okay, Cool. All right. Well, that's interesting. So we'll see what they do with it. And maybe maybe it's something, maybe it's not. I mean, he did say, uh, didn't he say this to, to Bronwyn uh, that um, that the heal, uh, you know, uh, healing the spirit is just as important as healing the body, if not more? Yeah. I mean, elves do die from grief. So that's like one of the yeah. ways that they die. So uh, and we see, maybe he we means see, that. We see Elrond healing Frodo, right? Or trying to, anyway. Right. Well, he, yeah, he's definitely a master healer. He's He's... He's the guy to go to in the third age. Okay, cool. 
Let's take a quick break here at this point, and then when we come back, let's deep dive into the island of Numenor. Okay, and we're back. And now it is time for us to get deep with the island of Numenor. John, Numenor. tell us tell us all about Numenor. And oh, you know, I can't borrow my R, so no, it's it's <laughs> um, it's crazy. We have two whole podcasts about Numenor. So I suppose we should do a little shameless self-promotion that in the links below in the show description, there are links. It's like the first uh, – it's chapter one and chapter two of our, yeah, our yeah. Uh, Second Age podcast are all about this. But we've got sort of a condensed version for you here. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say this. I have sanitized this of future spoilers, whereas Excellent. Thank you. I make no promises about those ones as far as future spoilers. I okay. think chapter one is probably safe. But I will not bet money on it. Chapter two is full spoiler. That is going through probably everything you're going to see in Numenor in here. So don't watch that. Don't listen to that if you don't want to be spoiled for the series. Yeah, or maybe listen to it later. Or if you're already yeah. a, if you read all this stuff, you know, definitely check it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we, we have fun. We have fun with book readers. Cool. All right. So the War of the Jewels. That sounds like a very cool thing. What's that about? So that is that war that you've heard Galadriel and the Numenorians fight about, basically. So okay. you know how, how uh, Galadriel said, you know, these men were rewarded for helping uh, the Valar fight against Morgoth, helping the elves fight against Morgoth. That's how they got this island. So this is what we're talking about, is how we got to this point. I just quickly interject, you know, as we were saying in the previous segments, um, that this show is very good at showing and not telling. But when they do tell... It's excellent. It's like compressed. It's delivered specifically for a point to a character who might not necessarily do that. So I thought that was a great little bit of exposition when Galadriel was telling Halbrand about about this island. I it was so tight in that dialogue Man. that every time she said a line, I went ooh afterward. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was I was surprised. I was taken aback. Uh, it was good. So, uh, yeah, so th- that was that was one disagreement I had with Jim and Aaron. They said this Numenor stuff wasn't very explained. I actually thought they did an excellent job yeah. uh, explaining that Numenor history. So we'll have beef on the feedback pod. My spouse and I were watching it the, the other night. She uh, watched it with me that, for my second watch. And by the end of it, she was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Like, this is some cool stuff. So, like, people are getting it. People who have no connection are are, are actually receiving the message. Right. So... Numenor, let's talk about its founding. Yes. Let's talk about how this island came to be, because it wasn't there in the first age at all. It it was not above sea level. Interesting. So, Arendil is a descendant of Baron and Luthien. He's a half-elf. He's got some Maya heritage. Baron and Luthien, uh, maybe we'll do a deep dive on them when we do a a segment on Arendir. I think that'd be cool. But for now, just remember they were a man and an elf. They fell in love. And they spawned a great line, and Arendil is is sort of this pinnacle of their line. Okay. So he ends up with a Silmaril. He ends up with the last Silmaril available as a result of a bunch of uh, a bunch of wars, a bunch with the elves and Sauron, a bunch of mischief from Baron. 
Yeah, so uh, j- just a clarification, the Silmarils have the light of the trees. Right, right. So, yeah. so we talked about in the last lore cast. Rewind if you need that. But the Silmarils have the light of the trees. Uh, there were three of them. There's there's one left. The two others have, have been hidden at this point. Uh, and, and so we have one Silmaril left, and that is being taken by Arondil to the Valar to ask for help against Morgoth because he's taken over a ton of Middle-earth. He's just this huge threat. He's going all out on the elves and men, and they've just had enough. And so they send Arondil, who is both man and elf, as sort of their envoy, uh, their representative, to go to the Valar and say, look, he's one of you. We can't beat him without you. Please, please, please help. Okay. So Arondil had two children. Uh, before this, and and we should we should uh, say who they are first. Okay, those are Elros and Elrond. Oh, the people we see on the on the uh, mural in the Hall of Laws. Right. So we're talking about their dad. So Elrond, cool. you saw him last episode. He wasn't in this episode. Shame. Uh, but we have him and his brother uh, Elros, who was the first king of Numenor, who basically founded it. And who Galadriel knows, and who she said she's always preferenced uh, his brother Elrond, right? So we right. got that. I mean, they're they're both elves, you know. They're they're yeah. buddies. So we're talking about the dad. So he goes there. Uh, he helps the Valar fight off uh, Morgoth, and uh, that that whole war happens. It's the War of the Jewels. They they destroy Morgoth. Uh, d- destroy is too harsh. They send him into the void. They right. defeat Morgoth. They send him into the void. He can't come back until the, the whole of creation is ending. Basically, the end of time. Tolkien's the Catholic. He's got to have some kind of end times. And uh, so so they send him back. And then Arendil is sent into the sky with a Silmaril and becomes a star. Oh, wait. Oh, so this is when Sadak Burroughs says he knows of a creature that was sent to this. That's who he's referencing. He's like, oh yeah, well I know I know of men becoming stars, but not the other way around, <laughs> right? So that yeah, that, that's what they're talking about. It's a great connection that right. they've done, right? Yeah, uh, and and taking these different uh, geographical uh, storylines and and weaving them together with these different characters. Okay, very cool. All right, and then is that the light that Galadriel gives Frodo when um, when they're on their quest to take the ring? Yeah, it's it's actually. A debate within the legendarium of who created oh, it, and I won't. Okay. I won't say who the possibilities are because it's kind of a spoiler. So, okay. stay tuned on that. But anyway, it's it's related. That light that he carries is related to this light. Of, right. Uh, uh, yeah. Right. That's referencing this guy. Okay. Cool. Awesome. So, Arondil was half elf. We know that he also had some Maya blood. The Mayas are the are the semi demigods, like you like to say, David. Yes. So the Valar are like, what the heck do we do with his kids? mm Hmm. What do we do with them? And so they go to the big guy upstairs. They knock on his office door. They're like, sorry, sir. Uh, can we can we ask you a question? <laughs> so Eru Iluvatar, he says to them, well, they're they're not men or elves. They're they're both. So you can give them that choice. And so Elros chose man and they're from the line of the Eddide. So he becomes one of them. Interesting. Uh, he, he ends up going with everyone to Numenor, becoming the first king. And founding the line of kings, the line of Elros, it's often referred to as. And his brother, Elrond, chose to be an elf, as we saw in the last episode. Right. So that brings some interesting context, too, with the this friction that we're seeing between the Numenorians and the elves. They're, they're related houses, in a way. 
They're they're exactly related, especially the Noldor, because you know, go back to our elf episode if you want to hear the divisions. But Galadriel is from the Noldor, and right. Elros and Elrond are from the Noldor too. That's their elf half is Noldor. Wow. So she should have a lot more standing when she shows up there, but they uh, certainly don't appreciate her being there. Yeah. So so she should be a little bit more esteemed, but I actually think it's totally reasonable for her not to know what's going on here. Sure. Because, not to know the current history, right? Right. I mean, so so we're looking at a Numenor that has been one of two things for thousands, at least hundreds of years, mm-hmm. which is either they are an isolationist society or they are a warlike society. I think they're going for isolationist here because, you know, that's it just seems like it uh, okay. based on the vibe we're getting. But could be wrong. Well, yeah, but Halbrand doesn't know who these people are. So that that indicates right. that. Yeah. Right. I mean, they could be pillaging the western shores of Middle-earth, but I think we would have seen some of that when we were with Gilgalad. So, uh, I don't know. But I think okay. they're isolationists. So, there's no reason why Galadriel, who's never been to Numenor at all, and who has not seen these people in Middle-earth at all, uh, would know. There's no reason she would know what what's going on. So, I think that that's totally fine that she's as confused as Halbrand. At least she knows who these people are. She's able to tell you the the origin story. So I think she has an appropriate level of knowledge here. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and obviously she knows Elros and actually knew him. So, right, right. All right. So, so who are these people that are living on this island and and that that was given to them? The Edain. The Edain. Later called the Dunedain. Mm-hmm. Also, kings among men. Okay. So these people are are men who are slightly superpowered. Okay. They generally live three times the lives of normal men. Mm-hmm. So they begin to wither around 200 years old. They start to get old around 200 years old. Wow. Okay. And then they die within like 10 years of, of declining. Okay. So it's basically a super long, healthy life. Uh-huh. And then you get old and then you die. Right. Uh, so, so that's great. That's a great line. Um, especially the line of Elros, the line uh, that we just talked about from A.R. and Deal. Uh-huh. Uh, they are the royal line, but but there's also, uh, you know, there's a ruling line and then there's a greater royal family. It's like the Targaryens, you know, you have Viserys's king and then you have Daemon's also Targaryen. So right. anyone who, who's from Elros's line begins to wither around 400 years. So they basically have a double life All of right. Numenorean triple life. So, and we're we're not sure how they're going to play that in the show, but right. um, uh, canonically in the writings, uh, that's what we're we're dealing with. So they could compress that a little bit, I suppose, but we'll see. Right. So Muriel should be aging like half as fast as a regular Numenorean. All right. So Tar Muriel, then her dad, who we don't see, must be very old at this point. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, he can live a really long time, and it seems like he's at least a little bit run down from what we see. Well, yeah, we don't see much. And we don't know how they're going to play these uh, long lifespans of the Numenorians uh, for a show context, right, in terms of what, what they have to do to make the, the TV show work. So with that said, what is the what is this animosity between uh, elves and uh, the Dane, the Numenorians? Right. So there was that line from Galadriel, uh-huh. All you have is because of us. I don't, it, that might not be the exact Ooh. phrasing, but that was the vibe. Yeah. So here's why she said that, is the Edine didn't just start living long because they helped with Morgoth. They actually started living long because Beor the Old, who we talked about in the Finrod segment last uh-huh. episode, uh-huh. Uh, 
he and his people, all the other Edain, uh, he's he's part of one one group of them. There's other groups, but but oh, the Edain are the men who came to live among the elves of Beleriand, that uh, okay. the elves of the west of Middle Earth. Okay. And they learned from the elves. They lived among them. They, a lot of them served the elves. They fought alongside them, and they sort of absorbed some elfishness. Now, I I, I don't think that that's like a physical thing that happened, but I think like living their lifestyle and learning their lore gave them longer lives. Just so it'd be like if they started sort of uh, took up the Mediterranean diet, <laughs> started yeah. eating a lot of Keto. fish and drinking well yeah, wine. Yeah, no. yeah exactly. <laughs> All right. Oh, so that's interesting. Oh, I always okay. So I always assumed that like that was some sort of boon that was granted to these uh, to this race of men. That was like another part of the the reward for for helping in the fight in the in the war of the jewels and to defeating Morgoth. So they they just basically uh, were living an elf lifestyle and that has prolonged their lives. Interesting. So maybe we should um, get a new diet going. Maybe we should the new Minorian diet. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, so but but so part of this is these men at first are not clinging to life. They're not like I need to live forever. Even uh, though they're living among elves who do live forever. They are fine with dying this death of old age, this death of weariness that the elves knew nothing about. So they're a little free in in the sense of their spirit. Like they're not grasping hard at trying to squeeze everything out of it. They're like a little bit more open and just going with it. Right. But Interesting. That's sort of what starts to change, is that men begin to fear death. They, oh. they As the Numenorians start to get older, mm-hmm. more start dying, because they've spread out, so more, more people are dying at a time, and uh, they're like, hey, how can we get more of this life here? Interesting. And so they start to fear death more, and they start to be a little bit jealous of the elves, because they feel like, you know, they, they do basically the same things we do, and yet... They get to stay forever in Middle Earth, or or rather in uh, Arda and the planet, uh, and we have to leave. We have to leave just for being alive. We don't have to get killed or die of grief. We just die at some point, and that's not fair, especially because a lot of the problems were started by the Noldor. Uh, you know, the Noldor are the ones who who took the <laughs> Edain shit. in. Okay, right. They they took the Edain in, but they also started a lot of these problems. Like they created the Silmarils. They started the war with Morgoth. They, you know, the the, the Noldor. You know, Feanor did nothing wrong. Of course, that's a joke. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, the Noldor really did cause a lot of problems in Middle Earth. Well, and even even later, Galadriel says to Halbrand, like, I started that war. <laughs> so, right, exactly. Right? Like, I'm the one that brought the smoke. So I love it when uh, Tarmiriel comes down the, the steps and she's like, no, we paid for this island, my friend. She That was like, Cynthia Adai Robinson is like amazing actress. I, I can't wait to see more of her. But like, yeah, there was some definite fire between Galadriel and Tarmiriel there. What was so cool to me about that scene was I think that there was some fake tension because I think Tarmuriel is is faking it a little bit to stay in power. Oh, totally. But I do think there was some real tension, too. There was mm-hmm. some real like, no, we did die for this island. Like a lot of us died for this island. That is true. And that is that should be validated. And Galadriel is just like, no, we gave you everything. That's not cool. So I do think that Tarmuriel did find that a really distasteful comment. Right. Yeah, this is great. This is super interesting. Okay, cool. So um, tell us a little bit about... So so they're given this island as a reward. Now, where is it? 
on the planet. So you got to sail west from Middle Earth. It's in the middle of the ocean. Sail west from Middle Earth until you're almost to the Undying Lands. Mm-hmm. And then you pull over. And you hop onto the island of Numenor. <laughs> so that's basically what Galadriel did. She hopped off right before the Undying Lands, and she hopped into Numenor. You can see the Undying Lands from Numenor. Oh, so it's like super close. It's like if you live in Alaska and you're looking at Russia. You know, it's it's like you're <laughs> so uh, <laughs> easy. But but really, but really, it, it's like that. You can see right to Manway's doorstep. You can see what's over there. That's going to be a little bit galling for the men, then, who are doomed to die. That right over across the waves is this place where we could get even more life. You've got the Apple of Eden right there. Right. Hey, you get this paradise right here, but definitely don't go over there. Uh-uh-uh. Do not do it. You can go east. You can go anywhere else on the sea. Do not go that way. What a great plan. That's never gone wrong before. <laughs> right. right. When I tell my six-year-old, like, do not have that cookie that's sitting out on the, <laughs> on the shelf, uh, it, out on its own on a plate. Do not eat that. Like, mm, that's going to be a tough one. Right. So they, they are in sight of paradise, but the Valar are like, you can't come here. You're not immortal beings. And this is the Undying Lands. Only immortal beings can live here. All right, so I can I can see why the Numenorians might have a little chip on their shoulder. They got a chip on their shoulder towards the elves, and they got a little chip on their shoulder towards the Valar. You know, they're inviting the elves to come visit from Tyrion. The elves are sailing over all the time. They host them, and they're like, maybe we'll come by your house next weekend. They're like, ah, I don't know about that. It's, uh, <laughs> all right, so we've got, and that was before, right? So before, you know, way before the elves and the Numenorians were, uh, even when they got the island of Numenor, they were doing a lot of uh, trade. It's the economy stupid stuff. Exactly, exactly. And they were doing a lot of trade with the elves. They got a lot of gifts from the elves. They got a lot of training from the elves. The elves taught them how to shipbuild. So they really did get a lot from the elves as much as they hate to admit it. Cool. All right. So we've got this five-pointed star island. The five-pointed star. You've got, you've got uh, you know, five major star points. There's uh, most major events, though, happen in Arendor, which is the king's land. And that's the ruling area, and that's what we've been seeing in the show. Okay. And it seems like they might have compressed or, or overlapped some locations. We're probably not going to see a lot of that. Well, who knows? We don't know. They certainly were giving us the view of this big island or big mountain in the middle of the island. They are, but I, I do think that they are. They're compressing it a little bit, but it is true that most of the events happen in this one, like, city center. Okay. Uh, most, of the, most of the important events in Numenor happen near Armenelos and Romena. Uh, so let's go over those cities, because uh, Armenelos is the city you saw. That is the city of kings that has all the fancy statues, that has the, the ruling seat, uh, and that's where Muriel is ruling. So that's what you saw on the show, Armenelos, even if they didn't name it. Okay. So near Armenelos, about 50 miles away, is Romena, uh, which is where the, uh, the, the faithful, you heard that word, but so mm-hmm. Elendil's people... Uh, have settled pretty much. So they're a little bit out of the city. Uh, Elendil is going in and out of the city to to do political stuff in the writings. And this, he's not as connected, it seems like. All right. And uh, so where else do we have that we should pay attention to? So Andustar is the western area of Numenor. And okay. the major city in it is Andunier. This used to be uh, the biggest city in Numenor because it was a port for the visiting elves from Tolarasea, the Lonely Island. Okay, and that's, yeah, uh, on the western side where they can see the Undying Lands. Right, and so when she's saying, you're from the western side, you have a western name, uh, 
that is yes. significant because yes. the Western Numenorians saw elves more frequently and they were slower to give up their allegiance to elves. And that's what um, uh, Elendil is saying is my name means elf friend. Right, because that's, that's what his family has been always. Now, here's an interesting thing, and here's some, some wild speculation for you. I know you're going to bring in Anarion later, because, first of all, I thought they were cutting him from the show entirely. I, th- I thought that they replaced him with the female, the, the sister, uh, right. rather than having, uh, uh, you know, Anarion at all. I thought that they were just going to replace him entirely, but it looks like he's just off screen doing cool stuff. So maybe we'll just slightly segue from the ge- uh, from geography for a second. Uh, one of our uh, listener feedbacks was from friend of the pod, uh, Commander Rosa, via Discord. And uh, he brought up this question, and he loved <laughs> I love how he put it. He says, in a classical Marxist-like division in family between reformist and revolutionary. Get out of here. <laughs> we love Commander this Rosa. This is not a political podcast. <laughs> anyway. Comrade. Uh, he says Elendil is faithful, but he's not very radical at all about it, even unsure. He mentions the past is over and we need to move on. And he's in Armenelos working for the people who are not what we can call them the Kingsmen in the books, but we don't know what, what we're really calling them in the, in the show, but people who are not allied with the elves. And he feels like a reformist who's thinking, and maybe we can turn society gradually from the inside. So when... The son, Anarion, is mentioned by Isildur. Isildur! Um, uh, uh, Elendil's reaction is rather strong, and he's like, whoa, like, wait, what, you talking to your brother? Like, what's going on here? And so Commander Rosa's theory is is that uh, Anarion is a true revolutionary who wouldn't uh, compromise on their elf valor loyalties and is maybe planning something. Um, and maybe he's living in the Western side and not being in the capital because he doesn't want to, you know, compromise on his values. So I think this is, I, I think we may get into some Game of Thronesy esque um, political machinations in future episodes and seasons. This is a great way to go into my wild speculation, which is this. But on the tinfoil hat, here we go. Uh-huh. Tinfoil hat. Get that, get that. E- emote on in the, in the, in the, <laughs> in the Discord. bald move discord all right so this is my wild speculation anarion is in the west like you said yeah with his grandpa amandil uh-huh. who was known for being super 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 faithful in the writings uh. and he does some cool stuff so i won't spoil anything but uh no yeah i think that he's in the west with his grandpa i loved this is what made me laugh out loud on jim and aaron's podcast uh, they compare this to National Treasure. To yes. Nick Cage and National Treasure. Like his <laughs> yeah, dad doesn't want him to pursue this anymore. Right. Absolutely. I think that that's totally right. So I think that Amandil, <laughs> Elendil's dad, yeah. was super into this whole faithful thing. And Elendil was like, Dad, I just want to live my life. I right. just want to be a captain <laughs> and just live my stupid life, my stupid long life. And uh, I want the same for my son. And now. Isildur is like, I don't know. I kind of like Gramps. And Anarion really likes Gramps. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, that's cool. I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't pick up on that. Now, the, we're going to just stay on the segue really quick. Uh, a, a, what's the sister's name? I don't have it. Aarian. Aarian. Here it is. Um, Aarian gets accepted to the Builder Society. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Who made some stuff in Middle Earth that we, we, we definitely <laughs> uh, see in some of the Jackson movies? It seems like Gondor and Arnor need a little bit of building. 
I think so. I'm, I'm hoping for that. Okay, well, that's enough. I'm taking my tinfoil hat off. Let's move on. Uh, anything more we need to talk about geography? We've got to talk about Metal Tarma, the big mountain yeah, in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got to hit the mountain. All right, so there's a big mountain in the middle of, this, of the island. I yeah. think that they've made it a little closer to, to the uh, throne room than, than it would have normally been. But it's a holy mountain, and it's a shrine to Eru Iluvatar. This is a natural shrine put there by the Valar sa- they, saying, hey, Go worship the big guy upstairs. Uh, it's definitely an analog for the great temple in Jerusalem. Uh, if you want to go to Tolkien, the Catholic world, uh, anytime someone prayed at the shrine, some of Memway's eagles came. Uh, only the king is permitted to speak at Menel Tarma, and only on holy days three times a year does he do that. Sounds a lot like the great temple in Jerusalem. Very cool. All right. And then there's some tombs at the bottom of it. We don't know if we're yeah, going to see Yeah, so there's eventually. like a valley of tombs of, for kings and queens, which is another okay. issue with the fear of death is is they're more into uh. preservation now. They're, they're sort of fearing death. They want to preserve themselves. I think that that's very frowned upon in Tolkien. So, and and just one final little show hook with this is when we see Isildur out um, with his cadets training, we see him wistfully looking off at uh, Metal Tarma, and we hear, Isildur. And it's like, hmm, wait, wait, somebody's speaking to him? Or is that just his imagination? Or is there mm. something else going on? So we've got some heavy foreshadowing there. The only other time I can think of somebody whispering in the head of another character, Galadriel. Ah, uh, yes. To, uh, yeah. But why would Galadriel do that with this? So I, I don't know. Yeah, no. We'll see. No, I think it's, I think it's something else. Okay, cool. So we have Metal Tarma. I think that's good for our geography. All right. So why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we'll go into the deeper story of Aldarion and Arendis, the Mariner's wife. Let's um, quickly talk about society. We have a deep cut here, and hopefully we can um, get what we want out of this without, <laughs> without going that deep, <laughs> without getting like, uh, you know, the bends here. But you have an interesting story that sort of sets some cornerstones, I think, for Numenorean culture. Okay, so here's my recommendation. Here's my pitch for this story. Okay. This is the only real narrative writing that Tolkien ever did about Numenor. So huh? this is where you get the tone of the society. Interesting. Uh, where where you don't find that in the in the Silmarillion or in the appendices. It's all just history points. But this is where you get right. dialogue. You get like real drama. You get family drama. You get politics. Okay. You get everything. All right. It's also the first time that the Numenorians had to go up like against the rising Sauron. Mm. Okay. So I think that they can allude to this. If maybe Galadriel says something to Tarmiriel, like, you guys have dealt with this before, or maybe Muriel suggests something about it, I think that that's going to be a cool little wink nod to the book readers. Okay. All right. So this is so this Unfinished is... Tales of, Middle, of Numenor and Middle-earth. Okay. And what's the story called? It's called Aldarion and Arendis. Mm, okay. Sounds very Old Testament. <laughs> Sounds very Numenorian. <laughs> yes. Okay, bring it. All right, so let's close out this section with this story. It is from Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-earth, like I said, and uh, it takes place hundreds of years before what we're looking at now. 
So Aldarion was the heir to the throne in Numenor. His father was king at the time. Uh, the kingdom still had contact with elves, but hadn't yet sailed to Middle-earth. They just didn't have the technology. Okay. And the elves sort of help them with shipbuilding, and uh, Aldarion takes a liking to shipbuilding, and he really would like to be uh, more on the sea than any Numenorian has been before. Uh-huh. Aldarion makes the first successful voyage to Middle-earth from Numenor. He establishes relationships with characters we've already seen, like Gilgalad, uh, and uh, he falls in love with the sea. It's a, it's a lot of you know that song Brandy. You're a fine girl, <laughs> yes, but, I know but song. my yeah. my life belongs to the sea. You know, right? Yeah. Uh, so so that's who he becomes because he falls in love with the sea. His dad the sea is, is pissed, always right, right? <laughs> uh, but his dad is pissed because he's like, hey, you got to get ready to rule, buddy. I'm not going to last forever. Uh, mm-hmm. You you got to get ready for the throne, and I, also. King needs a wife. King needs to be able to have heirs, too. Right. We're seeing that in, in, in uh, House of the Dragon, for sure. Right, exactly. And so that's going to be an issue. So he meets, actually, a woman uh, who is an issue now, because this is a person who... Eldarion is of the line of Elros. He's of the ruling line. He's going to live close to 400 years. Mm-hmm. And he meets a regular woman. He meets uh... a regular mannish woman who is on Numenor, but is not of the Numenorean bloodline. So she she's going to live, you know, less than 100 years. So this is... Tolkien, he keeps doing this, where he keeps putting these pairings together. And it, it, I, I can't... I can't help but, you know, call back to his personal life where he marries a woman that's uh, older than him and of a different uh, religious faith from him. And so it, we see these very critical relationships throughout his storylines of, you know, star-crossed lovers. Yeah, and you know, I will say this. I don't know when he wrote this exactly, okay. but I know his wife predeceased him a few years. Right. And I know he did not finish this story because he died. Right. So it could be that he wrote this after he had already lost his wife and he, he sort of felt the pangs of having an older wife or a, 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 a lover who would die before you. And that's oh. very sad. So I think oh. that you can see some of this tragedy there. Yeah. No, and this is, again, Tolkien bringing his whole self into his, his writings. Right. So, back to the story. So, Erendis uh, is a regular woman, but Aldarion is, is really into her, but he, he decides not to pursue her because he's still in love with the sea. He goes sailing out again, you know, goes out for a year or two, comes back, goes out for a year or two, goes back. She's getting a little older now because now, uh, you know, she's a regular woman. She ages normally. And uh, he finally decides to court her, and she's like, buddy, you are too into this sailing thing. I I don't want to deal with that. So she actually rejects him. Back and forth, back and forth. Finally, they get engaged and married, and uh, she starts this tradition of wearing a jewel above her brow rather than a crown, uh, which all the Numenorean rulers after that start. Uh, Now, I I know Tar Muriel has a cool thing in the show that's not quite as related but i think that's a cool detail yeah yeah oh yeah i love that design (laughs) it's totally cool okay so they had one child who would become queen because the numenorean inheritance law with the crown is the eldest child regardless of sex will inherit the crown uh so that's why tarmiriel is is ready to take over for her father so aldarion goes on an extra long voyage he comes back uh, basically after abandoning his wife for several years with their daughter, uh, she's gone off to the countryside uh, to, to have her own house. 
he comes back. His doors are locked. His father's not talking to him, really. And uh, he goes and finds his wife and daughter. They they are just running this household that just hates men. I think I think she forbids her housekeepers from marrying because she she's like men only bring trouble and no one in my house will have a husband. Um, okay. And anyway, uh, so he loses his wife and daughter because he was just so attached to seafaring. But his big impact is he created the seafaring society of Numenor. He made it a huge thing that they go sailing, that they're these great, great shipwrights. And that's why I wanted to bring this in for that cultural aspect. Okay. Now the other cultural aspect or historical aspect rather is his father now gets a letter from Gilgalad. And this letter says, Hey, thanks so much for your son's aid. He has been making fortifications against some new threat we're facing. And, uh, I, we think it's Sauron. We think he's coming back. Uh, and we really appreciate that help, but we're, we're still at war here and Sauron's rising. So will you please help us some more? Uh huh. So this is where Tolkien stopped writing. All right. Okay. So that's a little bit of a twist. Uh, but uh, his son sort of pieces together from the notes what he intended for the ending. So what happened was his father doesn't want to make the decision whether to help with Sauron or not. Oh, okay. So his father makes him king. He abdicates the throne. He makes his son king as he was already heir. And uh, Aldarion probably sent aid to Middle-earth. But that's basically all we have. Okay. So the important thing here is this establishment of a, the seafaring society. The sea is always right, as the uh, showrunners uh, put into the dialogue. Right, is that, and I think that it is worth a read if you want to get a taste of Numenor. If you want to get a taste of what how Tolkien, big is the? Uh, it's one of the longer stories in Unfinished Tales, but it's not okay. crazy long. It's, it's a short a story. Within, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not a full novel. Okay, cool. Awesome. Okay, so we've got some faithful folks. We've got some anti-elf, anti-Valar folks, right? So that's uh, possibly we're going to see this uh, tension play out between Firezone and, and Tarmiriel. Right, right, exactly. We've got Armenelos. We've got Metal Tarma. We've got to keep our eyes on the trees and the mountain shrine. And now um, this this question about the names of the kings. You had one more point of subterfuge, I think, that you wanted to point out. Yeah, so we have this thing where Tarmuriel is really putting on this uh, this show of being anti-elf, at, at least at face value. Mm-hmm. But Tar is the classical title of Numenorean rulers. And Tar is a Quenya word for ruler. Oh. Whereas R, A-R, is uh-huh. what uh, anti-elf rulers have traditionally used in Numenor. And uh, I, I was sort of, I was actually, I sent a message to Jim and Aaron earlier because they were talking about this on their podcast. Like, what is the deal with uh, Muriel's dad? Right. And what I picture it as is, if you've, if you've read the Bible, if you look at the story of Josiah, which is the last good king of Judah... This mm-hmm. is a very like big narrative thing. Like, is uh, Ju- the nation of Judah was falling down a path of sin and craziness, and uh, all these kings were going downhill and leading this country to destruction. Then Josiah comes in. He decides to reinstitute the Torah and reinstitute the law, and he sort of saves the kingdom for a time. But it's just not enough. So, the Josiah analog here is Muriel's dad, Tar Palantir, the far seeing. Okay. Okay. This is a very deep cut. If you very don't get that, cut. it's okay. <laughs> this is a deep Bible cut. That's crazy. Yeah. 
but but so basically what you're seeing is this nation has been going downhill in their culture for a long time. You had right. a ruler who was like, let's clean it up a bit. Right. Let's uh, let's they- save this uh, scroll room of Elros. Let's try to be friendlier with the elves again. And now you have the people still like, yeah, but we still hate elves. Right, and they exiled him for that, and uh, his daughter rules with um, somebody looking over her shoulder. Right, and she's queen regent. Now we know why. Because she's not the queen. Her dad's still king, technically. Right. But they just sort of dethroned him somehow, so... Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, I think the I think the the upshot of all that is is that we're going to get some really I'm fingers crossed for some real political Game of Thrones-esque um not in terms of the violence but in terms of the politics and the politicking that's going to happen. Um so that's going to be very cool if they can bring that on top of everything else they're bringing. Yeah, absolutely. I think cool. that we're in for a good ride. Awesome. All right. Well, let's wrap it up here uh, with a little bit of listener feedback. Um, We covered Commander Rosa's. We've got some other feedback that I think we're going to kick to next week, given the length of of this particular podcast. But we had one from the other week from uh, Leela, who is one of our uh, super active members on the Discord. And so she wrote in and she said, hey, guys, do you think that Finrod's words of wisdom to Galadriel were a callback or a call forward to Frodo and Sam going through the dead marshes. Uh, just as a reminder, that's when they were crossing these um, this bog land where there was all these uh, um, uh, dead soldiers uh, sort of sunk into the, into the marsh. They had to keep looking forward and up to keep hope alive, like the boat Finrod mentioned. If Frodo and Sam looked down into the faces of the dead and despaired, they would fall into the marshes, sink like a stone, and be lost forever. To me, this makes Finrod's last line to his sister even more interesting because he basically seems to say that sometimes the only way to tell the difference between good and evil is to touch the darkness. Seems risky. What do you guys think? So I thought this was really interesting, and I wanted to tie it back to this episode as well. Not so much about what Finrod had to say, but this goes back to um, uh, Tolkien and bringing his whole self to the story. Those dead marshes are absolutely a call to uh, Tolkien's experience in World War One, And I couldn't help when I was watching this episode, seeing at the very end when Adar is you know walking through the trenches, and even when Arondir is first sort of waking up as he's being carried, those were scenes right out of World War One for me. And then when they got up over the you know the, to the look over the edge of the trench, seeing the wasteland and the yellow smoke and and the sort of wreckage and ruin was that was out there. That is absolutely to me uh, all World War One echoes. I think you're totally right. I think this is a lot of World War One stuff, but. Um, I, I think that this whole you have to touch the darkness to, to see the light, it feels not very Tolkien to me. I think that that feels like Wheel of Time to me, if you want to tune in for that podcast. <laughs> okay. But uh, right. I, right. I don't think that that's very Tolkien. I bring, think the, that, bring the spicy uh, take. Listen, we're all about the hot takes here at the Lorehounds. That's right. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it, it seems like... Like, Tolkien was very like, no, evil is evil. Evil comes from the devil. I am a Catholic. I follow the Lord. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. It just feels... So, so Tolkien, I think, was fine with uh, levels of gray. Yeah. But I don't think he liked people playing around with evil. Even, like, Saruman 
studied the rings and studied the rings super closely right and studied domination super closely and he got sucked into that so I, right. I i don't think tolkien would agree with that sentence with that sentiment interesting okay well then so then there we go back to the the uh shippy test um you know what did the uh, you know, what did the uh, the what was authorial intent here, and how far deviation? How how big of a deviation are we getting from the core message of the of the books? So that's an interesting gauge point there. Like, hmm, how close is that in or not? Yeah. So thanks, Lila. I think that's a, it's really interesting. I I love the the World War One imagery, and um, I think it's an interesting point. We'll have to keep an eye on this whole thing, as John said. That um, you know this isn't necessarily within Tolkien's direct canon. So we'll see if the showrunners play with it even more. We'll see how much of a, a, a theme it is. So um, and to everyone else, if you want to write into us, we're uh, Second Age at baldmove.com. We love to get your uh, letters and comments. We've got a few in the mailbag for. We're going to push out into some uh, future episodes. Um, John, this next coming week, I think you're just going to be on the feedback because I'm going to be heading off for my big trip um, this week. So you find John on that, and hopefully they've got some good lore uh, lore questions for you there. You're going to have me and either Jim or Aaron, and it's either going to be this week or next week that you're going to get Marilyn Pukila, who, okay. who you might have heard on one of our previous podcasts. She's a Tolkien uh, scholar and we David interviewed her last time. I'm going to get to sit down with her this time. Yeah, very cool. Thanks everyone for hanging with us. This is uh, a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying the show and I, I can't wait to catch up when I get back to uh, hang out with you guys and uh, fingers crossed we can pull off a second breakfast for the finale. Um, John, any other thoughts or uh, things you want to mention before we uh, sign off? David, thank you so much for being with me on this journey. Mm, uh, I will pleasure. miss you dearly as we go on. <laughs> thank you. And uh, I look I'll forward to catching I'll up with you at the end of the season, though. We're going to have to do an extra long last episode so we can catch up about all your thoughts. I'm really looking forward to a season wrap up uh, where we can uh, dig into some of these bigger issues, too. Not just doing a you know scene by scene breakdown, but really get into some of this deeper lore stuff. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Six hour lore cast. Got it. block out the weekend okay thanks everybody we'll see you next time the rings of power lorecast is produced by the lorehounds and published by bald move you can send questions and feedback about this podcast to second age at baldmove.com or write into jim and aaron at dug too deep at baldmove.com for all lorehounds content subscribe to our firehose feed the lorehounds and for more rings of power content Subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcasting platform. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.